Welcome to the STFM Podcast, brought to you by the Society of Teachers of Family Medicine. In this podcast, we speak to leaders in academic family medicine about a variety of leadership topics. And now your host, Dr. Saria carter Sicosia. Welcome, folks, to the STFM Podcast, and are you in for a treat today? We have Dr. Leon McRae. Dr. Leon McRae is the Senior Associate Dean of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Drexel University College of Medicine. Welcome, Leon. Thank you so much. This is a great opportunity for me to be here. Appreciate all the things that STFM has done and what they are about and what they promote. Welcome the opportunity for us to have a conversation today. Excellent. Um, We are really excited. This is going to be fun. So first, tell us a little bit about your story. What has inspired you about family medicine and who is Dr. McRae? You know, I guess the I always start with the beginning of the journey, which is that the first part of the inspiration was I don't think I even knew I wanted to be a doctor when this whole thing started. It really started with my mom planting a dream. I, I made the mistake of not answering somebody's question the right way one time when I when I was figuring out what I wanted to be when I grew up. I either gave a blank answer or something that didn't like suit her fancy. And she was like, well, you got to tell me you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer or something. And <laughs> um, I was good at math and science at an early age. And I think the doctor thing just stuck. Uh, but I did science fairs. And, you know, I remember meeting Ben Carson at some science fair one time and thought about thinking big and gifted hands. And I like from there, it just kind of took off. And so you can do the, the regular stuff of going to undergrad. And I enjoyed the heck out of undergrad and uh, took some time off taught high school before I went on to medical school, uh, fully knowing that medicine was the path. But I'm not going to lie. I did not go into medical school knowing that family medicine was going to be for me. I think I had like much of the ego and bravado that goes into what it is to be a doctor that was about status and about Mm -hmm. which doctors are perceived to be the smartest and all those things. I mean, I think there's lots of social pressures that push people in these interesting directions. Uh, And I always like to say that family medicine chose me much more than I chose it. Somewhere in my third year of medical school, I realized I liked everything. Uh, And I had a conversation with a mentor and mentorship is so important. And the mentor said to me, like, you know, you're supposed to be a family doctor. And I was like, you're crazy. There is no way I'm going to be a family doctor. And but then I thought I was like, I loved longitudinal relationships with patients. I I loved, you know, taking care of kids and delivering babies and, and it fit me. And so when I think of my journey, it really has been much about not leading always with my head, but also with my heart, like doing the things that feel the best and feel right. And so I always talk about a little bit of the time I took teaching because I also realized that education had to be a component of what I did. I teach my patients, I teach my residents, I teach my medical students. And that was a really important part of of, uh, who I am and who I became. And I've incorporated that as a residency program director. uh, And now I serve as a, a diversity dean. And selfishly, I say, I think that one of the reasons why I was put on this earth is that was to help people in their journey to become doctors and specifically folks who look like me and look like me doesn't just mean like African-American males, but it means folks who have some degree of intersectionality, folks who have maybe had some atypical path. And in this position and serving as a, a diversity dean, a dean of diversity, equity and inclusion, it has really allowed me to um, really be in a pivotal place. Um, to help people in their journey to become docs. And, you know, every once in a while, while I'm dealing with medical students, I try and, you know, nudge them towards family medicine. So that is who I am today professionally. 
Um, I really love what I do. And uh, it's what gets, it goes, it's what gets me up every day. You know, I, I'll tell you a funny aside, which is a lot of times now the pandemic has made us uh, work from home. And so I've kind of set up a little bit of a home office, home studio situation, whatever you want to call it. Got my desk, my computers, all these screens, all that kind of stuff. And my kids don't believe I'm working. They're like, you're doing too much laughing. You're like, you're, ha- you're making too many jokes. This can't be work. And so, you know, what I want for all our listeners is to like figure out a thing you really want to do and like lean into it so it won't feel like work. Because um, the path to medicine does take a lot out of you. But if you can find that thing that gives you purpose and you can lean all the way into it, I think it's awesome. Well, mama always knows. She does, right? She always (laughs) knows. And being a mother myself, I can totally relate to that. And having kids and, and thinking about what is their passion? What's their thing? I think that's a very important internal question. That's important to answer and to be intentionally seeking. So I love that part of your story and connecting your head with your heart. And, and we do in family medicine have a way of finding you. Yes, we Listen, do. Absolutely. Right. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's um, amazing. You know, it's crazy now, right? Like I can't think of what other thing would I be doing except family medicine, right? Like now that you're in it, you're saying to yourself, like, was I thinking about something else? Uh, my days are just fantastic. You know, it, it was funny. I had a co- I had one of my really like this happened today. One of my really good friends from medical school. And she was like one of my mentors in medical school. And you're going to hear me always talk about mentorship and the mentorship can be peer mentorship. Sometimes you have mentorship from people who are junior to you and then much more senior to you is a really important thread of success. Uh, and she sent me <laughs> a picture because we ended up going to the same residency program of me taking care of our residency coordinators granddaughter. And so like I've been taking care of her daughter and seen her from adolescence and now she's a mom and now she comes to my office and I take care of her child, right? She brings her child to me to be taken care of and she showed me a picture and like we had little heart emojis back and forth and those are those family medicine moments like taking care of generations, keeping it in a family that are just priceless. And those are indeed the best stories, those stories of continuity, those generational relationships and love emojis. It is so true. And it's obvious that you have been a teacher all along. So your mother had the right idea. You did need to be a doctor. It is who you are. It's clearly (laughs) in your blood. And to be able to teach family medicine, that's a whole other level of commitment and connection to our specialty. So I do have a question for you now that you find yourself in this senior dean role. Mm -hmm. And first of all, I'm so impressed that Drexel has decided this is priority, high priority. And by identifying a dean who is focused truly on diversity, equity, inclusion, sends a signal. It sends a signal to learners, to faculty, and hopefully to patients that will benefit from that learning. So tell me a little bit about your perspective of what you're seeing from a DEI point of view for learners, for faculty and patients, because I believe those stories certainly overlap, but may be different. You know, and and we'll take them one at a time. I'll start with the learner because to me, that's has to be where it begins, right? Because the lessons um, that we each take, you know, I think of the lessons that I learned as a medical student. I think of the residents, the lessons I learned as a resident, uh, and even lessons I continue to learn as a as a practicing physician, because um, our p- patients teach us every day as as central. But I also think that we are learning in an environment where we have such difference in generational experience. 
I mean, oh my gosh, what an amazing time to learn in a time in which we have redefined things like gender identity, where we have redefined what inclusion means, when we have addressed that inclusion is actually important and that we have given a voice to our learners. You know, I remember when I went through training, the idea was you just put your head down and people told you what to do and you just took it and not like take it in a bad way, but like your job is that, you know, your professors are on high, your educators are on high. And now we live in a space where there is a partnership and that partnership is amazing. And so it empowers our learners to take real ownership of their environment. And so what does it mean? What does equity actually mean? What does it mean to create an opportunity such that wherever it is that you have started in life, whatever it is that you identify as or that the world sees you as, that you can end up with the same types of opportunities. And maybe even more important than that, we are trying to teach each other to recognize that there are inherent opportunities that we may or may not have based on how the world sees us. Mm-hmm. And that's a really interesting challenge for us because in a world like medicine that is incredibly competitive, right? Because even in the schools that like, you know, everything's pass fail and all these kinds of things, how do we make sure we train each other to value the importance while learning about anatomy and physiology and biochemistry or the clinical rotations to value the importance of promoting diversity and inclusion in those spaces? Because it's easy to just focus on what's happening to you, what's in your own personal ecosystem. But are you willing to 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 look and see like, hey, I'm in a small group and I've noticed that there's someone in my group of four or six or eight people who seems not to have a voice. And am I willing to amplify what they've said, you know, to say, oh, you know, my colleague over here just said that thing. And I want to amplify that they said that and that that has value. Am I willing to do that? Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. This really changes what we see oftentimes is a power vertical between learners and faculty. And in fact, it creates more of an inclusive environment. In the words you used, partnership and training each other. And I'm wondering if sometimes you find faculty aren't so comfortable in that space. Again, you and I, we were trained in different days. Absolutely. And, And what's interesting is, and this is why I started with the idea that this is an amazing time, is because as faculty, we are constantly challenged to evolve. I mean, think about it. We learned out of textbooks, out of written syllabi, maybe transparencies, going to physical libraries, right? Oh my God. <laughs> right? Our learners today, everything is literally in their hands. They're learning on pre recorded content, they're learning off of YouTube clips and shorts, they're learning off of all these virtual, they have all these data points. We as educators have to figure out now, is it easier? Is it harder? How does my educational experience compare to those of of the people that I'm training? Like, why is it important for me as an educator to say pregnant patient and not pregnant woman? And what does that mean? Even though for the entirety of our experience, pregnant meant woman. Well, it doesn't necessarily today. That's right. And, And what degree of openness are we to have to that and understand what message that sends to everybody in the room? That sends a message to the patient. That sends a message to the nursing staff. That sends a message to the custodians. That sends a message to all your students based on you being the leader in the space and having a willingness to stretch 
in terms of how it is you identify things and understand that you're going to step in it. You know, one of the things that is so uh, inspiring and scary about this work is that one has to have a willingness to be vulnerable. I'm a diversity dean. I tell people I make four to six to eight mistakes a week for sure. I misgender someone. I say something that may be culturally insensitive. Heck, I may use a nursery rhyme analogy from my childhood and then say it out loud and realize like, oh my gosh, now that I actually understand where that came from, man, listen, it was interesting. I actually gave a talk one time and I'm going to thank one of my colleagues at a residency program where I used to work. And I was using a reference in a movie and, you know, almost everyone's heard of the Karate Kid. And I was using a reference from that movie that is very famous. The wax on, wax off analogy that I was using as part of a conversation. And one of my colleagues said to me, he said, you know what, Leon, like. The world thinks that's okay, but in my community. Part of that's actually really offensive. And I didn't appreciate that until it was brought to my attention. I thank that individual for bringing it to my attention because there are a number of different analogies that I could use. But until someone brings it to your attention and then you have a willingness to actually receive that feedback, that you can actually make change. And that's the thing that I always think about, too, is is that we have to have an openness as educators for the people that we are training to actually give us feedback. And we can we have to receive it and not lash back out. Right. Because you know what it's like as an educator, a teacher or whatever. If you give feedback to somebody and then they lash back at you, you're not giving them feedback anymore because who wants to get beat over the head? And so thank you. Right. And then we just walk around with these blinders in this own space. And we are creating these micro and macro aggressions. And we don't even know what's happening because no one's willing to come and tell us because we have said to them, this is not safe. Well, let's dive in to that for a minute. Yeah. So because I hear this often, oh, my goodness, everybody's so sensitive and you can't say anything these days. Mm -hmm. And that's that's that defensive mood. Yep. And, And I get it. I get, you know, people are uncomfortable. They don't know where to step. And, and how do we help faculty that are uncomfortable with that space or let, you know, let's even move it over to patients. Are well, we listen, hearing that and, in that space? How do we and do both. this? You're so right. So for faculty, sometimes I just ask them, would you want to knowingly make one of your learners uncomfortable? Mm, like, like powerful. if you, if you walked into a small group or walked into a learning environment and you knew that every day you walked in there, you were, because of your words, making one of your learners uncomfortable, would you continue to do it? Especially if there was a way for you not to make them uncomfortable. I am not saying that we need to unlearn or undo everything that's ever happened in our lives. I am not saying that we only should have gender neutral bathrooms, but I am saying a gender neutral bathroom needs to be an option. Right. And, and, and that is the thing, right? I am saying that opportunities for inclusion need to, to happen. I am saying that we need to have women in leadership. I'm saying that we need to have folks with intersectionality in leadership, right? And so the idea that we can't think that those things are possible creates this imbalance. And then let's talk about the patients, right? It is our job to educate, to support, and to encourage our patients, right? Our patients are living in the same world. They're getting fed the same media. They have the same biases. And because of the way that we communicate with each other now, social media, lack of true interpersonal dynamic, because how many people do we actually know anymore? You know, Mm. I think about the depth of relationship and how things like social media, 
have created what I call this kind of false sense of community. How many people, and I, and I, often, I think about this when we think about inclusion, I think about this with your patients, is how diverse is your personal dinner table? How diverse is the cohort of people you're inviting into your home? Different than the professional world, right? Because many of us live a very diverse professional experience because we have to. We work in academia. We take care of diverse patients. You know, we do all these things. But like, if you think about like your Sunday dinner or your Saturday night hangout spot in your backyard, in your barbecue or your cookout or, or your happy hour, how diverse is that space that you are choosing to bring people into? And one of the things that is brought up in, and uh, I think it was Brian Stevenson talked about this in Just Mercy, is this idea of being proximate. Yes, and, yes. And until we become proximate with each other, until I have a willingness to have an appreciation for your lived experience, like I don't, I don't, I don't need to know what it is to be you and you don't need to know what it is to be me. But if we share time together, if we break bread, if we have conversations beyond the superficial, it gives me an opportunity to be a bit more empathetic, uh, to understand, and maybe an opportunity for me to share with you some of the challenges I'm facing. Because you know what, like, I, you know, folks can't see me here, but I'm not only an African-American male, but I, I talk about this a lot of time. I'm also bald. Right. And from 2000 to 2010, I had dreads halfway down my back and I can't I can't grow them anymore. And so now my head is shaved. Uh, and I often talk about this idea that, like, you know, sometimes I see another bald guy and I give him a head nod and we talk about how we became bald. But it's also interesting to talk to someone who has tons of hair and have a shared conversation about like, I used to have that. I Now I know what this is like. I know what it's like to do this. I know what it's like to have a ponytail. Like those are things that are shared experiences. And it doesn't always have to be about the obvious phenotypic differences. Can we just get in community and have conversation? And I think that's how we create real inclusion. Well, and in your words, that is true intersectionality. Right. And, and I really feel in this situation, maybe... If, at least from my perspective, being a faculty is an incredibly fluid environment today. You've got to find ways to connect, learn with, learn from, and teach learners. And you're getting it on the other side with patients. You could use the example of Google or information that patients bring in with them to the bedside. And instead of dismissing their efforts of engaging in their care, there's an opportunity to have conversation. And I think that conversational um, aspect is really important at this space and going beyond the superficial, as you said, and really get into it with people in a positive and connected and and sometimes emotional ways. And I think we've seen this with patients. I know I've had these conversations with patients because of being a white woman. I don't look like a lot of patients that I treat at our free clinic. They're Mm. all different types. And I love how you use the example of not just color. There's gender, there's bald, there's hairy, there's in between. Right. And all I mean, we, we have we have weight ways. bias. We have all kinds of things that we that we carry as a component of this experience. And, and thinking about the patients, you know, the other thing that you mentioned that family medicine gives us this opportunity, but we have to lean into it. We have an opportunity to establish trust with our patients. Mm, trust. But in order to establish mm-hmm. that trust. Sometimes that requires that we give something to our patients so that they can give something to us. Vulnerability. Yes. And I often talk to many of my learners 
about the importance of some degree of vulnerability with your patients so that they know you're also human. Because I think that there's a part of us that wants to be really guarded. Like, I am the doctor. You are the patient. I don't want you to know anything about me. And that's fine. But I have just found that when I give my patients just a little bit, like telling them that I'm married or a little bit about my kids or that I've been on Weight Watchers before and I can tell you about this or that, you know, I ran a half marathon or I know what it's like to want to choose the the ice cream first instead of or, you know, I know what it's like to have binged on diet soda and finally given it all up. Those are all things that like I share with my patients. And as a result, they give me so much more. I'll tell you an interesting anecdote about patients and about the power of, of the patient. I had a patient I was taking care of for, oh my gosh, 15 years or so. And she was a tough patient. She gave my front desk a hard time. She gave me a hard time. When I wasn't <laughs> around, people didn't always necessarily want to see this patient. But she was my patient. And I loved her and I cared about her. Uh, and she had lots of chronic illnesses and, and unfortunately passed sooner um, than, than I would have hoped, younger than I would have hoped. And I still take care of her kids and who are now adults and, and we, we've been going through life together. But I had the privilege of going to her funeral because the kids told me about it and I had a chance to go. And I share this because I talk about our perceptions, our biases. And what I realized was, is that this person, this woman was the backbone for her community. When I listened to the testimonials that her loved ones, the community in which she lived, talked about when my mom threw me out of the house, I could always come over here. When I was down on luck, I could come here, I'd get a hot meal. And what I realized was this was a person who was carrying the weight of a community on her shoulders. And then what happened was she was able to unload when she came to the doctor. Like her unload time was the little slice of 15 minutes that we spent together. And so it gave me a different perspective about what it was to be a difficult patient, to have more layers than you anticipate. And so I think about that in our equity journey, which is a lot of times people are only showing you a small piece of who they are. But until we get to know them better and develop that trust or understand or create more inclusive spaces, can we find out the breadth of who they are and why it is that they've had that lived experience? Or why it is that they're reticent to speak in a group because maybe they've had times where people have not respected their voice or why it is that an interaction created some tension. And you're like, well, why did that person so sensitive about that? Well, you know, when you actually ask three more times, every time that's come up in their experience, they've had a bad outcome. And so now they preemptively stop someone from even going down that route. Um, But it's only once we get to that place where we start to develop trust that people can open up. Uh, and get to those things. And I had that with that patient. And it taught me a lot. It taught me to appreciate the fact that we are privileged as doctors to be able to take care of hurt patients. But it also reminded me that we also have hurt faculty and we have hurt students and we have hurt residents who are also just giving us a slice of each other. And so that's why I say I step in it four to six times or eight times a week, because everybody needs grace. Everybody needs an opportunity to mess up. You know, I don't believe in a shock culture where you say one thing that's inappropriate and like all of a sudden you're a bad person. Nah, I mean, you know, if people figure it out, if they grow, um, yeah, I mean, you can't just say anything. I'm not saying that. But the idea that any of us is beyond reproach is just not not okay. Well, first of all, it sounds like that patient is an incredible person. It 
it's a funeral I, I would like to go to just to hear those stories. I think that's very powerful. And it reminds me of perhaps some examples I've had in the exam room with patients. And I often find those who are the prickliest, they're carrying armor and they have built this armor up because they've had to build the armor and giving them those opportunities to be vulnerable by demonstrating vulnerability, I think goes a long way. And I find in this space, secondly, based on the story that you shared in your perspective, we are all learning. I think about how I take care of patients today, how I teach and how I see the world just in the last five years, of course, for so many reasons, is so very different than what I did before. And it goes back to that constant evolution that you refer to, not only for faculty, but for all of us. Mm -hmm. So I'd be curious to hear from you as we're all, again, all on this journey to learn Mm -hmm. by being in this role as the Dean of Diversity, has anything surprised you? Has there been this major aha moment or, oh my goodness, I can't believe I've been doing this for so long or how you learn to approach people. Any of those for the audience today? So I'll say a few ahas. I think my first aha is that, oh my God, this is difficult work and it is incredibly rewarding, but um, it can be exhausting. And so I I tell anyone who gets into the diversity space uh, or in just the justice space, right? Like wanting people to to be treated and and seen in an appropriate way to to pace yourself because this is this needs to be seen as a as a marathon and not a sprint. You know, fires happen and part of our job is to to have fire extinguishers. We cannot prevent every fire that happens, right? Like fires are going to happen and our job is to help to be able to extinguish those when we can. Um but the other part I'm going to I'm going to speak about is as we're learning and growing in this space is uh, I want to talk a little bit about exceptionalism. And when we think about um, how we increase diversity, how we increase inclusivity, how we create equity in these spaces and, and, and increase access, this concept of the exceptional different person, the exceptional person of color, the exceptional person of intersectionality, we have got to work to increase the pathway for individuals from diverse backgrounds to get into this space and not all be academic institutions who are trying to fight for the same small cohort of individuals who are exceptional. Every person of color, every person with an intersectionality who has made it this far is exceptional. When you think about the years of study, the commitment, the missed events, the sorrows, the pain, the excitements, the the triumphs, these are all exceptional people. And I think the job that we have as educators is to continue to push to redefine what it is that makes one successful. You know, we have all these metrics that we have been using for a really long time to help us determine what it is to make a successful doctor. Standardized tests, list of of experiences? Did you shadow? Did you do enough research? Did you do enough community service? Right. All these checkboxes, right? With no phenomenal evidence about any of them really determining what makes an excellent clinician. The, the, the data on that is overwhelmingly inconclusive. And so when I think about the challenge or the aha, it is that I want us to step away from exceptionalism in that everyone is looking for the top 10 of the top 10 of the top 10th percent of whatever that thing is that you're looking for in your space. Whether that's a 
the, as they call them, the unicorn, the African-American male in medicine. I mean, you know, the double AMC has put all that stuff out and I'm one of those African-American men. So I'm floating out here. Right. So I can talk about it a little bit, but everybody wants to recruit those into their space. Well, let's, let's help more get into the space. Because if there are only 400 or 600 who are matriculating into medical schools every year, and one year my school gets 12, well, that means the other school didn't get 12, they got four. And then next year I get four and they get 12. So we are not, we're not moving the needle. We're just pushing it around. And so, and again, this is where I go back to this concept of exceptionalism. It is, let us really calibrate what it is to be successful in this journey what supports we need to put in place, and then what it is that we want on the other end in terms of a successful clinician. And we get this more in family medicine than maybe some other disciplines. But even in our field, everybody wants these traditional metrics. And I just push us all when I think about what it is that that has surprised me. It is the challenge for us to avoid exceptionalism in what it is that we use to increase the diversity uh, the inclusion and the equity in our spaces. And so I push us all to think about what does it take to make a, a doctor? What does it take to make an awesome medical student? What does it take truly to be a resident? I mean, when you think back on your time, I'm sure you taught many a resident, many a student. How many times has it been the student who's like in the middle or closer to the bottom of your rank list who ends up being your chief resident or the student who's struggling as a medical student who all of a sudden now is like, AOA and killing it, right? You know, I mean, oh my gosh. And so when I think about what has surprised me, it has been how much work we need to do to move that needle from exceptionalism and what we look for in all of our intersectional spaces. This is such powerful insight. And when you said the word exceptionalism, I thought I knew where you were going to go with this. And there's some traditional thoughts about that and some pieces I've read. But your examples and your stories about what are we looking for and who who becomes the best doctors, that is just an important message I think we have to listen to. There is literature out there that says we need to go to places to find the people that need to be in medical school and not just the Ivy Leagues and not just the fancy neighborhoods or gated neighborhoods. It's what schools do we start? And Leon, I am a graduate of community college. I grew up in a trailer park and I was a sixth grader who never thought someone like me from my neighborhood could even make it to medical school. So I feel you. And when people saw me, when I felt heard, it changes. It changes the level of confidence you have as a human being, your ability to be a doctor, because you always see it as someone else. And Mm. so thank you. Thank you for these examples. And It just warms my heart to hear you say this. And being a physician executive, it reminds me of, for example, the C-suite or leadership meetings. Talk about it. And, And let's talk about that because I think this is what we need. And you said it. Not only do we need topics like this to be agenda items, but they also need to be physically in the room. Yes. Not just the exceptionalist talking about what should be done and how it should be done. You need people in the room. What does your community look like? Because I believe that's what medical school can look like if people have the right resources, if we're engaging and connecting with the communities. So all of this, I mean, this is just so good. I mean, this is good stuff. I could talk to you all day. 
but I want to ask you something because you mentioned metrics. Yes. And and metrics are hard. Metrics are mm-hmm. one one side faceted sometimes. Yep. And not as multidimensional, but they can be meaningful. And I think it's got a driver work. We've mm-hmm. seen that beginning January 1, 2023, we are required to develop equity measures. Now I'm going to tell you also, I read today, just today. There's pushback from health systems saying we're so overwhelmed, we can't possibly add these measures, one of which is the equity measure. And I'm reading this going, we can't afford to wait to add this information. So tell me, is Drexel University using, utilizing, maybe patient-oriented outcome metrics? Or are you considering what are some measures that evaluate the impact that we've had, the movement that we should be seeing? What do you think about that? Yeah, so really, really fantastic question. Um, because I think that without metrics, we can't actually measure success, right? Because how do I measure the impact of an intervention if I don't have a way to measure what impact it's made? And so I'll start with a couple of things in terms of what I think about in terms of successful metrics. Some are easy data driven for me. And I'll use this as an example. Let's use graduate medical education. I use that as the, the graduate medical education piece. So what are some pieces that I like to think about in terms of of metrics for success in terms of increasing access and or increasing your diversity? So there are a few things that we can look at that are very substantive. One, let's look at the demographics of the individuals who apply to your spaces, right? So let's say you're a residency program and you have a thousand applicants. So what are those demographics? Whatever those metrics happen to be. Next step. What are the demographics of the people that actually make it through your filter? Because that's a different demographic. That's who it is you decide to invite to interview. Next, what are the demographics of the individuals that you choose, who choose you? So that means like they've chosen to come in for an interview. What does that look like? The next piece, you got to make a rank list. You got to decide who it is you want to end up in your space. What are the demographics of that list? And even more important than that, is everybody, and you know, most of the folks here are, are in education, so they'll understand a rank list hopefully a little bit. If you don't, it is that residency programs rank each person from one to 50 or one to 75 or one to 100. Um, but each residency program knows about how far down the list they're going to go every year. Some places go down 10, some places go down 30, some places go down 75, some go all the way down to 100, whatever that is. But every program knows what their sweet spot is. Like, where do I generally get my folks? Now, how diverse is your sweet spot? How diverse are you in your match zone? And then eventually at the end of it, we have to look and see how is it that you actually are diversifying your space, right? So that is one ultimate measure of success. And to me, that's a five-year, that's a seven-year metric. I can't expect you to fix that overnight. And so if we identify that the first piece is there are not enough people of color who are applying, I'm using people of color as one example, into your space, then the first thing we have to do is say, then you need to advertise in other places right? Then you need to be intentional about actual recruitment, or you need to be intentional about creating opportunities for medical students to come into your space, to, to do away rotations, to do you know uh, those sub-eyes, those acting internships, et cetera. If it is that they're coming, but they're not making onto your rank list, then why? What is it? Remember we talked about that exceptionalism? Are you really ranking really, really high, the same three or four exceptional people that everybody else in the country wants, and then you feel in some kind of way because they don't come to your place? And you said, oh, I did my best. No, you didn't. We can, listen, we, we can be honest here with each other, right? <laughs> no, I see you. Didn't, you. Right? 
And so, and so there has to be a stepwise way. So that's one metric is that can you start to increase within your health organization, your pathway for more physicians with intersectionality to populate your space? And why I say you have to start in the, in the training spaces is, is that disproportionately, lots of folks end up practicing for some window of time where they've trained. And whether you're getting one year out of them, three years out of them, five, seven, or a whole career, people often spend some portion of time practicing where it is that they've trained. And so I think of the training ground as the first metric is can we get access to the data? Are we willing to look at the data? And are we willing to hold each other accountable for our actual recruitment patterns? Because if you can get them into your space and then you can make that space inclusive, then those folks will stay and practice and affect your communities. The other piece I think that, that we have to look at is for each person, this walk to, be, to, to believe in justice and to, to believe in access uh, and to create equity, it has to be a personal thing. Each of us has to decide to wake up and decide that this has some value. And whether it has value because you're making the proposition that you're an altruistic physician and you believe in the, the, the good of the whole, or you realize that because I am willing to learn more, this will help me take better care of my patients. Like I'll have a connection. You know, it's like, oh, I'm moving into this community where maybe English isn't the only language spoken. Am I willing to actually learn another language so I can connect better with my patients? Am I willing to make that sacrifice? Or is it because I'm now more culturally inclusive? I have now opened myself up to another segment of the population who will come see me as a caring physician. How many times do you know that if you notice that a person of, whether it's a person of color or a person who speaks a specific language or whatever else moves into a community and then all the folks start finding them? It's not coincidence. It is that they are creating access and opportunity and inclusion for all these folks. And so there has to be some internal accountability because I do believe that there's a component of measuring our work but there also has to be, I think, a personal challenge that we give to each other, which is like, you know, what are you doing? What are you reading? Like, what are you doing in your personal walk? Hey, as a component of your next promotion, one of the criteria is what are you doing in the diversity, equity and inclusion space? Have you partnered with a colleague who doesn't look like you? Are you promoting an initiative? Are you doing work in a community? There are lots of ways that people can hit that metric. And so I think that that's another thing that we can do is that we have to continue to tie it to academic progression. And one of the things that happens is, and, and you know this because you've seen people working in this space, many times the people who do this work, they do it as a labor of love. And because of the labor of love, it often does not become part of their academic promotion. They don't have the time or energy to write about it. They don't have the time or it is not as valued by their organization. Writing about cultural sensitivity is not the same as writing about A1Cs or the latest uh, novel agent to fix AFib, right? They're, they're not exactly seen in the same light. Mm -hmm. And so the other thing that organizations can value is what are we doing for all of these individuals as a metric who are doing work in this space to see how they promote, to see how they move along in their journey. Uh, and then, the, oh, wait, I'm sorry. You know, you, you got me going. Go ahead. You go. You no, go. no, no. And, and I, I heard the last thing. I want to hear this. Um, the other breath, thing I was going to say notes. is, well, listen, the other thing I'm thinking about is you started with the C-suite. 
And you brought up the C-suite. And so there's the other metric. We have to look at the degree of diversity, inclusivity among actual decision makers. And I always say true decision makers because it's one thing to, to diversify your committee, but your committee is your committee diverse in terms of folks who actually get to make a decision. Those are different things. When you notice that like, you know, at my institution, and I, I really thank my institutional leadership for this, they do a fantastic job. I report to the dean. I don't have a go-between. I don't have a, a number of layers. So our initiatives, you know, in my regular meetings with, with my leadership, I get to sit at the table and actually have input. And what I really appreciate about it is, is that they value my input, not just on things related to diversity. Like I see myself as a leader in medicine, not just a leader in medicine from a DEI lens. And it's very easy for folks who do this work to often be pushed into a corner, which is we are only going to ask for their opinion as it pertains to things related to justice or equity or diversity. But no, I can talk about budgets. I can talk about global leadership. I can talk about academic promotion. So all those things are also really important components of what it is to have real database change, right? And so, and the other thing I'm going to say, and, 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 and I want to mention this because it's really, really important. We have this interesting dynamic that is evolving in terms of what it is to be underrepresented in medicine. And there are the historical groups, you know, African-Americans, Hispanics, um, indigenous folks. And, and those are really like, those are, the, those are core, those are key. Um, but there are also folks who may be overrepresented in medicine, but not overrepresented in medicine leadership. And so I think, for example, my Asian brothers and sisters and my Asian folks, what is, the, what is their percentage in leadership? How many are leading institutions? How many are leading departments? You know, there are other underrepresented groups in leadership that we need to be thinking about and having a much more broad lens. You know, I, I, you know we, 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 we are in this space where we talked a lot about anti-racism, and that is really important. Listen, we live in a country where we're Black versus white or Black and white or Black white, however it is you want to define it, has been the, the engine that has driven a lot of these machines, right? I mean, we get it. A lot of it is based clearly on phenotype. It is easy to identify uh, and has polarized our society for hundreds of years. But it does not mean that we, need, we can't evolve into an idea that we have to think about anti-oppression. There are so many groups who are, who are disenfranchised. I mean, it's, for, it's funny, like we're having this conversation and if someone were to ask which one of us went to an Ivy League school, they wouldn't guess me first. But I did go to an Ivy League school and you went to community college, right? Yeah, yeah. Right, and, and, and so, but what happens is, is that there's that phenotypic assumption or that lack of understanding or the idea that you and I may have so much more in common than we do different, but we need to be able to sit down and have those conversations. You know, I have a lot of conversations with my students from Asian backgrounds and they talk about the isolation. They talk about what it's like to be a person of color, but not be seen. What does that mean in medicine? To be silent, to be expected to achieve at the highest level, regardless that there is no cultural sympathy for that. I mean, there's so much, there's so much power in what we have as an opportunity here to expand our lens. And again, I am very intentionally an African-American man in medicine who cares passionately about getting more black and brown people into medicine. That is, I told you, started with that is part of why I am here. But I am also becoming increasingly aware and sensitive to the idea that we have to broaden our lens about what it is to be inclusive and that 
anti-oppression means so many more things. And it means so much more in terms of gender identity and intersectionality and a commonality among experience that is so powerful. And so that is where I think that the, the future of this direction really has to be is an appreciation of each of our journeys, but not a tit for tat comparison. You know, people talk about like, I would never compare the Holocaust and slavery. Why, why are those even compared? They are both atrocities, period. And I leave it at that. I'm not trying to compare pain. I'm not trying to compare whose struggle was crazier. I'm not trying to do that. I need to empathize with the fact that, you know what? You went to community college and you made it to be a physician. Only 3% of people who go to community college actually end up going on to finish and getting an undergraduate degree. So you already a three percenter. Like that's crazy, right? And so knowing that, that gives you and I so much in common because I was part of a different 3%. My 3% was from a different pathway. But we both are three percenters in different ways to actually end up in the same space and be on the same podcast, right? And so like that is what I love about this work is that it gives me an opportunity to meet incredible people with passion who are like-minded, um, but also who challenge me and help me think and help me grow. The other thing that, that I have been intentional about, and the other word I like to use is intentionality, is that until you diversify your spaces, you will not grow. You know, we made a very intentional move in our office to recruit in a very inclusive way. And the growth that we have had in our office based on the diversity in the space has been otherworldly. And it's because there are things that you just cannot even think about or appreciate without having all the people that matter in the room. And I think to myself now, I'm like, oh my gosh, what were we doing before we diversified this space? I bet everybody don't want to just want the Leon perspective, right? They don't want just the ball guy perspective. They want the perspective of some people with hair. Right. Sometimes. Sometimes. Right. <laughs> and so I, I say that to say, like, yes, this is a this is really important and powerful stuff. And with intention and with purpose, we have to, like, do this because it matters. Mm, mm, I love this. OK, so I'm going to try to boil the ocean. OK. And <laughs> right. Dr. McRae's ocean. And you talk about lenses and broadening the lens. And I'm going to use the example of zooming in and zooming out. Okay. Zooming in and zooming out. Zooming out institutionally, I hear measures are necessary. Sure. They're not necessarily in a box, but we do have to hold ourselves accountable to measure institutionally, systemically, mm-hmm. how we nourish diversity. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that's number one. Number two, and this is one that every single one of us can work on every single day. And that is zooming in to self and being held accountable. As you mentioned, the promotion, if you're in a faculty space, it's promotion. If you're in an employed role, it's according to what your supervisor says is important for this measure. And of course, that should take input from the individual. And if you're self-employed or if you just care about this work, focusing intentionally, one of your words, intersectionality, another one of Dr. McRae's words of wisdom. And you just brought me back to this example of something that I learned in residency and I keep playing in my head. 
And it's because it's so important to me and how I have evolved too. We talked about this continuous learning. I remember a day in residency where one of my wise attendings was um, discussing a Hispanic patient in the office and I was going to go see them. And, and the comment was, well, let's see if we can connect them to a Latino physician, a Latino resident. And I remember taking offense to that, kind of get my feelings, my ego yeah. hurt. And wow, it took me time to process that. And I look back at that rich moment and realize this is why we do what we do so that we learn, so that we see each other, that we recognize like helps take care of like, Mm -hmm. and we take care of each other. And that's why, again, diversity at the table and not only on the agenda. Mm -hmm. And I I could repeat and I could recite the notes that I have that I'm going to keep with me and I've just been so inspired by you today, by your message, by your passion and your perseverance for this work. I think that translates to the grit of this marathon that you refer to, and we've got to pace ourselves. Dr. McCray, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a spectacular podcast session. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I would, you know, I will happily come back if we have to do a part two, four, seven, twelve, whatever. And again, whatever the topic, it's been a blast. If I could say one final word, it would just be um, thank you for the opportunity. Um, I hope everyone continues the good work and that they find their purpose and they live it. Let's live our purpose. Dr. McRae, I know our guests plan on doing the same. We have committed to you, to our communities to do just that. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the SDFM podcast produced by the Society of Teachers of Family Medicine. Visit us at sdfm.org and follow us on Twitter at stfm underscore fm. This podcast is copyright Society of Teachers of Family Medicine 2021.